This podcast is brought to you by the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Behind the Story. I'm Yondan Latu, the chief news editor here at the South China Morning Post and host of Talking Post, our flagship video series where I interview global newsmakers and personalities. You're about to hear from Singapore's former top diplomat, George Yeo. When it comes to credentials for informed commentary on world affairs, few can match his resume. A former brigadier general in Singapore's army, information minister, health minister, trade minister, finance minister, foreign minister, Yeo has done it all. He now calls himself a peace whisperer, as a commentator who brings an Asian perspective to global discourse that dares to challenge dominant Western narratives. I had the privilege of interviewing Yeo recently for an episode of Talking Post. Many viewers asked for the full interview. So here it is, my extended chat with George Yeo. George Yeo, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Singapore by video link. So uh, obviously I wanted to start with China-US relations and the dangerous situation in this part of the world because of the uh, toxic geopolitics going on. But I think everything takes a back seat, everything should take a back seat in light of what's happening in Ukraine with the Ukraine war. I mean, it's been going on for months now and people seem to have uh, become, you know, seem to have battle fatigue or whatever it is. But the rhetoric has become very, very dangerous. There are two countries threatening to nuke each other. Russia's threatening to use nuclear weapons. The US is warning that, you know, we will nuke you too. We will, you know, there'll be catastrophic consequences. And these are things that affect all of us, not just those two countries. It is so troubling, you know, it's as if as a species, we have not learned from past mistakes. War is inherently uncertain. When Putin embarked on this adventure, he thought it would be a cakewalk. It turned out to be much more difficult. Yet at the same time, I don't see him losing. And we are stuck now with the incorporation of the four oblasts into the Russian Federation and the sabotage of the North Stream pipeline. I fear that Russia and the US and Europe are walking to a long, dark tunnel from which they cannot easily reverse. And this may create a lot of uncertainties for the world. This light-hearted talk of uh, nuclear exchange is, is madness. Once you begin that exchange, there is no stopping point because the side which feels itself losing will become even more desperate. And then little by little, we will ratchet upwards. I only hope that China has a wisdom and the statecraft to avoid entering that tunnel. Because if it does, then the whole world will be in jeopardy. But I think the Chinese will find a way to stay out of this. But, okay, Chinese will find a way to stay out of this, but you think China has a peacemaking role there? It's, it's ironic, isn't it, that the country that is vilified by the West and the US so much, which is China, is the only country that's talking about peace. Everyone's talking the language of war right now. Putin was actually talking about mutual assured destruction when he said, all options are on the table, and if we are driven into a corner, if we need to use weapons that are means, uh, we will. And the reply from the U.S. is, if you do that, the consequences for Russia will be catastrophic. Sure, because we're talking about nuclear war, but the consequences will not be catastrophic for just Russia alone. It'll be catastrophic for Singapore, it'll be catastrophic for Hong Kong, for China, for everyone else, right? Well, Putin has long come to the conclusion that the Western powers, in particular the U.S., mean Russia ill. Their objective in the long term is to weaken, 
disunite and destroy Russia. Now, whether it's true or not, that's what they believe. Now, I can believe that for some in Europe and for some in the US, Russia cannot be small enough or weak enough. And Putin feels that if he doesn't take a stand now, it'll be harder later. So when he moved into Ukraine, what he called his uh, special operation, but what was really an invasion, he recalled Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, when Hitler unleashed on the Soviet Union the biggest land offensive the world had ever seen. And he said Stalin thought he had a peace agreement with uh, Hitler after the Ribbentrop-Molotov deal. And he didn't expect Hitler to invade, and he did. But it was no cakewalk for Hitler either. But in the end, Russia lost 20 to 30 million people in that terrible war. Putin recalled that to say that if he doesn't move on Ukraine, he didn't quite say it, but he implied it, next would be Belarus, and after that, Russia itself. Now, we may disagree with his fears, but his fears were what prompted him to act, which cannot be in Russia's own long-term self-interest either from the strict cost-benefit point of view. You know, what you're talking about here is basically those who cannot remember history are condemned to repeat it, right? That, that's the situation we are in now. You did mention how uh, you expect China to show wisdom and to stay out of it. But China is a different front again where it's under so much provocation. There's so much, you, you saw what happened with Nancy Pelosi's visit. It seems the U.S. is hell-bent on provoking China into taking some sort of drastic action. My question is, how much longer can you keep prodding the panda before it turns around and mauls you? So how much more wisdom or restraint does it show? Can it show? The US is not one brain. I mean, there's the presidency, which is weak. Then there's Congress. There's a deep state, all with different agendas. I mean, even for Pelosi's visit, Biden might not have been in favor, but he did not feel it strongly enough to call Pelosi to say, look, you don't go, because Pelosi would then say, well, the president asked me not to go, and that's why I'm not going. They're all worried about elections, and the midterm elections in particular. So when we talk about the US, it's important not to see it as one brain, one center, but to see it as a cluster of brains and a cluster of centers. There are certainly some who want to provoke China into war, if possible, because they think that if war with China is inevitable, then better to have it earlier rather than later. Then there are others who feel that China should be moved down a peg or two because it's getting too arrogant. And there are others who feel that, look, if we do nothing, they're, they're going to overtake us and we can't allow that to happen. And as Sui Tingkai, the Chinese ambassador to Washington many years said, there's an underlying racism involved. I think there probably is some, but it's not the whole story. So when we talk about the US, it's important to almost separate out these strands even, even Pelosi, I mean, we think of her as a provocateur in, in the region, but she has her own enemies in the U.S. and who might have been setting her up too. So <laughs> I think it's a complicated game and, and we shouldn't get involved in U.S. domestic politics. Unfortunately, what happens there will have a powerful impact on the rest of the world. And China has got to factor this into account. But these people, these, uh, these forces in the U.S. who are inclined towards provoking a war with China, you know, getting really tough on China. What's the end game? This is a nuclear power. We're talking about two nuclear powers and elements uh, of society or politics in one country thinking it's okay to go with, uh, to war with the other. What's the end game is 
mutual destruction, is it not? I mean, isn't that such common sense? You don't have to be an astute politician or thinker to just come to this basic conclusion. A war is catastrophic for the entire world. But before we reach Armageddon, there's such a thing called proxy war. Uh, like the one the US is fighting in Ukraine right now. It's a in proxy Ukraine, war. there's a hybrid war. An American friend of mine describes the US Treasury Department as a department of war, which in a sense it is, for hybrid purposes. So countries are all trying to jostle for advantage, using the threat of war as leverage, but not really wanting it to be made use of ultimately. But when we act dynamically against one another, we may end up in a position which we did not intend to be when we first started. I think this is what has happened in Europe. All parties have now ended up in the position they did not wish for originally. But they seem to be not doing enough to step back from the brink after that. It seems to me, uh, when you look at uh, China versus the West, a lot of it to do is with a lack of real knowledge of history. It's a clash of civilizations, uh, so to speak. But civilizations, we're talking about a Chinese civilization, which is thousands of years old. And then you have uh, Western uh, European civilization, say uh, American civilization, which is a few hundred years old. So there's no historical context. And you've spoken, you have a new book out called Musings. Uh, you always write very interesting stuff, I, I must say. But you've brought this up now and then, and I find it most fascinating because it's the explanation to the West when you talk about what China is all about. You mentioned this game theory kind of thing where China wants a win-win situation, but uh, it may be forced into a lose-lose situation in the end. Can you explain that for the benefit of our viewers? I find it very uh, encapturing of what's going on with China right now versus the West. China feels that it, is, it knows it's getting stronger relative to the US. So time is on its side. So it should not fight now if it can fight later. And it may not be necessary to fight later because by that time it will be strong enough to prevent a war from happening. So China's objective should be to play for time. When the U.S. makes moves against China, China cannot show weakness because if it shows weakness, then the Americans will do more against China. So they have to be firm, but they should not escalate. That's what I meant, that if the U.S. wants to push China into a win-lose position, China will say, look, I prefer win-win, but let it be lose-lose, and let's stay in lose-lose until you, in your wisdom, come to the conclusion that we are both better off being in the win-win quadrant. And the lack of understanding of Chinese history is an important part of this. Many Americans think that when China becomes strong, it will behave like an imperial power. The way the Western powers in Japan behaved when they were powerful, they will start you know, taking over other people's territory, that they will colonize, that they will dominate. I think the Chinese know that there's no profit in this. You try to do that, you incorporate other peoples into your own heartlands, your own nature will change. I don't believe the Chinese want Beijing and Shanghai to be like Paris or New York or London, with so many non-indigenous people in their midst. And in fact, it is this which is causing a lot of the division in US domestic politics today, because of race and because of, of religion. I think China prefers to be homogeneous. The fact that China is 94% Han, it's not an accident. It's not just one policy. It is a cultural instinct. 
It is something developed over centuries that we're better off being similar. You can have some foreigners as a garnish, but in our core, we should remain Chinese. So when we have a problem like an epidemic, and we have lockdowns and all kinds of inconveniences, we may complain and grumble and be very unhappy, but in the end, we will comply because we are Chinese. That's what they prefer it to be. And that's why in the history, they're always building walls. You know, they're building walls, physical walls, cultural walls, capital market walls. And now the most impressive wall of all, the great biological wall of China. This is a civilization that prefers its own homogeneity and therefore will never behave the way the Europeans did. I mean, do they really want the kind of society they now have in Europe and in America? But what they have now is a direct result of empire. George, you know, uh, I've heard many uh, astute Western commentators, sanctimonious explanations of what China should be doing and how China should be contained. And uh, one of the arguments that I come across all the time is that China, as long as it's massive population, it's looking after them, it's self-contained, it's dealing with poverty there, it's uh, dealing with uh, lifting people's livelihoods, improving the country, as long as it's, it's a very condescending uh, take, but uh, it makes sense, as long as it's busy doing all that, looking after its own people, it doesn't have any imperialistic ambitions or it's not a threat to the world. There are no distractions. The danger is that if there's social unrest in China, if it can't control the population like it's doing right now, then it becomes a threat to the world because it's going to have to seek distractions and you know that kind of stuff. But isn't that exactly what's happening with the US? Inside, if you look at it, it's almost, you know, we all, people almost talk about civil war there. And then you, you look at the homeless problem, poverty, the inequality. They have a lot of mess, a lot of messes to deal with there. So rather than deal with that, let's head out into the world and start attacking people. Let's start vilifying and creating monsters. Isn't that exactly what's going on here? The reverse of what these commentators say. But it applies to them. I think America has always been a bundle of contradictions. It was almost designed like that by the founding fathers, who were so distrustful of the kind of authoritarianism on the European continent from which they fled, that they were determined to build onto a new continent a different way of organizing human society, with checks and balances, with all kinds of uh, friction to prevent any one group from overly dominating American society and reserving for the states many powers. So the only in a few things they, they write into the constitution provisions for protection, like guns. Think about it. Why did they protect ownership of guns? It's because they always distrust overly centralized authority. That in extremists, the people have guns. When it came to abortion, I was very intrigued by the judgment of the Supreme Court when they reversed Roe and Wade. It was a long judgment, but the key point is this. The Constitution never talked about abortion. Therefore, there is no constitutional position on abortion. Therefore, you must leave it to the states to decide, because the Constitution was designed in such a way that for powers not taken by the center, they are reserved to the states. And because of this decentralized structure of American society, there are always contradictions. So yes, if I go to San Francisco, I see homeless people. But when I go to the universities, I find the most incredible people in the world. 
and members of my family were saved, their lives were saved by American hospitals. Treatments which were not available anywhere else in the world. So it is a land of contradictions. I think we all worry about the internal divisions. If it is as bad as it was during the Civil War, we must always remember that the Civil War was settled by violence. And in America, there are plenty of guns. So we are worried for America. We are worried for America, not because we are Americans, but because we are worried for ourselves. If America is in distress because of its position in the world, the years of Pax Americana that we've been enjoying, there'll be horrendous consequences for us. You take, for example, the US has some 800 military bases in the world, and they keep the peace. We may not like the peace, but they keep some kind of a peace in different kinds of the world. How are these bases financed? They are horrendously expensive. But they are financed by the US dollar, seniorage. So the US can print money in a way that no other country can. It's a reserve currency. Most international trade is denominated in the US dollar. So this means that the Americans can tax the whole world to finance its military bases, which in turn keep the peace in the world, Pax Americana. Now, one day, the whole process will reverse. So Pax Americana has brought us years of peace for development, including China. But I fear that that period is ending and we're entering a new multipolar world, which will be messier, which requires a lot of statecraft and leadership. But whether we like it or not, in a period of transition into this new world. And in this new world order, Given the dynamics between China and the US, you see them stepping up to the brink like it happened with Taiwan and Pelosi's visit, and then you see them stepping back again. Is this just a dance that's going to continue? Can we all rest assured that good sense will prevail in the end? Or are we really sleepwalking towards our doom here? Because we don't give enough importance to how dangerous it is, these dynamics between these two countries. Lee Kuan Yew was optimistic. I remember him saying that both sides, in the end, are rational. I'm not so sure now. Trump was brought into power by mass emotions. Biden is weak, and mass emotions now divide American society. And there are different groups acting in different directions. So while China may be a rational player, on the U.S. side, if something happens, say, in the South China Sea, and the ship is sunk and hundreds of sailors lose their lives. I think the domestic reaction in the US will be so great, it'll be very difficult for the White House to contain it. So we may be pushed into a new situation because of an accident which had happened in the East China Sea or the South China Sea. No, China has got to factor this into its scenario analysis. It cannot assume that the US is one player and it must allow a margin of safety because when the US reacts in a particular way, China will be forced to react. The U.S. will react again, and gradually, in little ratchets, we end up in a dreadful position. George, the way you talk about China is very different from the mainstream narrative, especially uh, the Western narrative and the, the, the dominant narrative that goes. The Western narrative is the dominant narrative that goes around the world. 
Uh, you've been labeled as a pro-China guy. I don't see a problem per se with that, you being pro-China, just as I don't have a problem with somebody being pro-US. Both equations uh, carry a certain amount of baggage with it, uh, as well as uh, plus points, right? But more than a pro-China guy, I think of you as uh, some, and some people also see you as some kind of China whisperer. So basically a person who can explain on an intellectual level China to the world and in some kind of way, you know, create and foster understanding. Are you some kind of modern Lee Kuan Yew in that sense that you're the bridge, the intellectual bridge, the narrative bridge? Uh, no, I was, uh, I was described as being pro-China because I was asked the question, are you pro-China? I gave a long answer, but I said, yes, I'm pro-China. But if you ask me, am I pro-America? I would say, yes, I'm pro-America too. Am I pro-India? Oh, yes, I'm pro-India too. So <laughs> I was taken out of context, but I didn't want to say I'm not pro-China because then I'll be even taken more out of context. But I'm Chinese, which means that I have a, an affection, an emotional connection to a civilization of which China is a large part. When China was downtrodden, when it was being ravaged by imperial powers, all Chinese in the world were stepped upon. And when China revives, all Chinese in the world feel that their coinage has been revalued. I mean, ethnic Chinese in America, they could have been US citizens for decades. They are now under surveillance by the FBI because they are Chinese. Well, that comes from being a part of a civilization. And if there's a consequence, well, there's a consequence. And I was in government for many years, and Singapore has very close relations with China. But we also have close relations with the U.S. I myself studied in the U.S. I got married there. My family members were saved there. I was uh, with the U.S. Army for a number of months, training to be a signals officer. So I'm not anti-America at all. But let me summarize it in this way. I think I prefer to be a peacemaker. But I'm not a Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, no one can be a Lee Kuan Yew. He's inimitable but in our own small way where we can be a peacemaker, be a whisperer for peace and not a whisperer for toxicity. You brought up this idea of this pan-Chinese ethnicity thing, or, you know, a global Chinese kind of uh, identity. And you also mentioned the slightly uh, xenophobic elements of uh, the US versus uh, China confrontation. Uh, for a country like yours, uh, Singapore, which has stayed neutral the whole time. Is there a danger, ultimately, when it comes down to, if, if these nuclear uh, you know, threats and brinkmanship, if it becomes reality, is there a danger that all Chinese, ethnically uh, you know, concentrated Chinese uh, areas, like, like Singapore, for example, in the end, you'll have no choice? You'll have to make a, take a side. Well, if we have no choice, then we have no choice. If we, in the end, must choose, then I'm sure we'll choose to survive. But Who, whose side would that be if it came down to choosing? It depends on the situation. It depends on the specifics. You, you can't do it in the abstract. If the U.S. were to fight China over Taiwan, I think Singapore would not support the U.S. at all. But if, the, if China were to turn mad and started aggressing its neighbors, especially ASEAN neighbors, then I think Singapore would have to take the side of ASEAN because it's where we live. This is our neighborhood. Singapore's life chances are, are improved if we have a strong ASEAN. A strong ASEAN that includes Vietnam, that includes Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, and behind which we can hide should we be confronted with very difficult decisions by invoking an ASEAN position. And for this reason, I think that uh, Singapore's 
economic and foreign policy to have at its core a mission to improve ASEAN, to make it more integrated, more united. In the end, in a world in chaos, with big plates on the move, Southeast Asia, where the plates clash, should be where the pieces are kind of linked together in a with little loops rather than rigidly, so that we can move with the stresses and not also crack up ourselves. I think this is doable because of the nature of Southeast Asia and the fact that we are weak. We, we do not threaten anybody. And because we threaten nobody, we are soft. In that softness is our strength and our advantage. But threatening nobody, staying neutral, is not necessarily a viable position anymore these days when you have uh, global powers like the US saying you're either you're with us or you're against us. There's no such thing as neutrality. You support us, otherwise you're against us. The US have tried it. They find that there's no market for that in Southeast Asia. They have now softened it. They say they were not asking anybody to choose publicly, but privately they still put a lot of pressure. But they will find that ASEAN's private and public positions are the same. Small countries, they may feel they have more leverage over, but I don't think they will likely push Indonesia or Vietnam or Thailand. In the case of Singapore, they know we're three quarters Chinese. And there's a limit to how pro-America we can be and how contingent it is on how China fits into that equation. Let's talk about Hong Kong for a bit. Uh, you've lived and worked here for many years. You understand the city very well. Uh, You've seen what happened here in 2019 with the anti-government protests and the street violence and all the nonsense that went on. And then you see uh, now the changes that Hong Kong has gone through and is still undergoing. What's your takeaway on that? What do you think of this general outside Hong Kong and China narrative that the national security law has you know, destroyed society and uh, the whole city is under a lot of repression? People talk like that. Well, in the years I worked in Hong Kong, my wife and I would go back to Singapore every month, at least for a few days. So we're always sometimes subconsciously comparing one place to the other. In 2019, we no longer felt safe. And we were relieved when we came back to Singapore to be able to talk freely, to be able to eat in a restaurant late into the night. Hong Kong was becoming strange to us. And I was frankly quite disgusted at the way the Western media were lionizing the violence, which they will never give allowance for in their own societies. But for Hong Kong, well, because they were against China, there was something to applaud. So it was sickening. Uh, I was relieved when the national security law was introduced, but I know that many of the people I know, work with, my friends, are not happy. Some have left Hong Kong. Many are still sullen and they're waiting to see what the longer-term situation will be like. One important question mark has been removed, which is what happens to Hong Kong after 2047. For as long as Hong Kong was in ferment, I don't think China would have agreed to one country, two systems continuing beyond 2047 unmodified. But now that the national security law is in place, which is entirely reasonable because all countries have that, and the British certainly had it when they were in Hong Kong through the special branch and the special powers. This has now ensured that beyond 2047, there will still be one country, two systems. It is likely to continue indefinitely because it serves China's interests. Hong Kong, unlike Shanghai, is outside the wall. Shanghai is inside the wall. From time to time, that wall may have to be policed 
for various reasons, because of China's own internal requirements. But Hong Kong will be outside. So Hong Kong plays a very specific, important purpose for China. It was for this reason that for centuries, Macau was allowed to be what it was. Macau was not taken from Ming China. Macau was a concession given by Ming China to the Portuguese. But the Portuguese knew that you don't use Macau against China. And so the arrangement continued into the Ming Dynasty, into Republican China. And when after the revolution in Lisbon in 1972 or 1973, Portugal said, we return Macau to you. China said, oh, hang on. We need to settle Hong Kong first. In other words, China was in no hurry to take back Macau because it serves China's interests. So in the same way, for as long as Hong Kong serves China's interests, Hong Kong will prosper. And I think with the national security law in place, I'm optimistic for Hong Kong's long-term future. But it's got to go through a period of time for people to accept a new reality. There's no doubt that the atmosphere in Hong Kong has changed. I mean, among Americans, I'm told that 80% have left. It feels less international. It will remain an international city. It will remain an international financial center, but principally to serve China and not to serve the world. But there's plenty of prosperity for Hong Kong in that role. My mind goes back to 1989 after Tiananmen and Hong Kong people were in panic. And Lee Kuan Yew decided that better for Singapore to help put out the fire than to benefit from a fire in a neighbor's house. And he put me in charge in 1990 in the approval in principle scheme to give Hong Kongers the option of a right of abode in Singapore in an emergency. In other words, they get pre-approval. So be relaxed, stay in Hong Kong. If things suddenly take a turn for the worse and you want to rush to Singapore, the door is open to you. We must have issued some 300,000 AIPs in those two years. I came to Hong Kong many times. In the end, a few tens of thousands came. They became Singapore citizens, among whom many have gone back to work in Hong Kong. But as a result of which, Singapore and Hong Kong are even more linked by blood today. But my mind goes back to the fear in Hong Kong at the time. It was much worse than today. So people say that, oh, this time is different. Now I've seen it before. It's not different. It's not as bad as 1989. And Hong Kong has a special appeal to people who were born here, who grew up here. When I was in carrier logistics, I had colleagues who were from ethnic Chinese, who were from South Africa and Australia. And when they came back to Hong Kong to work, they felt they were coming home. Hong Kong has that pool. Among those who leave now unhappily, some will still come back. And even their children will come back. When you talked about one country, two systems, uh, there is a counter to all the naysaying and all the, just like 1997, the talk about the death of one country, two systems. Did you see something very interesting recently, which was uh, Hong Kong deciding to open up its international borders, not with the mainland still. If you think about that, mainland China, and Hong Kong is a part of China, it's a city in China, right? So mainland, the national strategy is uh, dynamic zero COVID dynamic zero infection. That's their strategy. And they're extremely rigid about it, as you can see. Now in Hong Kong, we have thousands of infections every day still, but we are allowed to open our international borders because it's one country, two systems. 
I mean, what further proof do you still want when you keep talking about the death of one country, two systems? This is unthinkable in the rest of China, opening up your borders to uh, you know, other countries while you're still reporting thousands of cases. But that uh, brings me to this, during this whole time that uh, we were still under this uh, restriction and our borders are closed and everyone's complaining about it, all the time we had, including myself, we all made comparisons to Singapore, <laughs> saying, look at Singapore, look at, look, look how they're grooving it, and what's wrong with us kind of thing. So you've seen this many times, this, uh, this rivalry, I don't know whether it's official or unofficial, it's definitely in the public uh, domain uh, when they have their daily conversations. Why can't we be like Singapore? Or Singapore saying, look how nicely they did that in Hong Kong, look, oh, you know, why, do we, why can't we do it? How healthy is this? Is competition good? We're we're all in the same market for talent. You know, we all need talent. We all you know need to boost our economies. Uh, but there's this rivalry, and and how healthy is it? How good is it, or how unhealthy is it? Then? I remember the second last governor of Hong Kong, David Wilson, and we were talking about the rivalry between Singapore and Hong Kong, and he he described it as a kind of rivalry that exists between Oxford and Cambridge. It's a kind of rivalry which is exaggerated because it's entertaining, because it's fun, and it engages people. You know? But deep down, they know that the two societies, the two economies, are profoundly similar. Donald Chang is a good friend. I remember talking to him when the global financial crisis was over. I said, isn't it strange? We had different policy responses from Hong Kong, yet both of us emerged into the same position. He laughed and said, isn't it culture? And there's profound similarity, economic cultural similarity between Hong Kong and Singapore. Politically, we are different. Now, what's interesting is this. When COVID first started, the cases were in the hundreds. And there was a sense of rivalry in Hong Kong that they should not lose to Singapore. Then it exploded on both sides. <laughs> we stopped looking at the numbers because we were fighting a fire in our own house. It's good that we learn from each other. Looking back now, Singapore looks good, but while going through it, people were complaining, people were angry, people were fed up, people had bad things to say about the government. But there's one difference. In Singapore, there's much greater trust of government than in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, partly because of the history, partly because of the demonstrations, the level of trust by ordinary Hong Kongers in the government is low. And that greatly complicated the management of COVID in Hong Kong. And it was further compounded by a period of time when Hong Kong wanted the front gate of Hong Kong to be shut so that the back gate to China can be flung open. But Hong Kong's COVID situation was never good enough. So for some months, Hong Kong was trapped in the twilight zone where the front gate was shut, but the back gate was not open. And Hong Kong people were almost in solitary confinement. And that was completely miserable, especially to people who were engaged in international business. But I think now China has decided the back gate should be controlled and it has always been. You can keep the front gate open. And when that happens, Singapore and Hong Kong will equilibrate again. So uh, you have this new book out. You've written quite a few books and uh, they're all very interesting. They're all worth reading, I must say. What's uh, with this latest one? Well, it started as a limited project, a series of interviews with Wun Tai Ho, which would then be compiled into a, into a short book. So I was promised, oh, 10, 12 sessions, each two hours, it's done. And after the first two interviews, I found that my thoughts were all over the place. 
and I decided to write before every interview, 10, 12 hours every week. And it went on for six months. And the publisher said, the chapters are too long. Can you break them up? So then I, we had over 50 chapters and we couldn't do it in one book. And we found we had enough material for three books. Then I decided to include pictures because it would lighten the reading and it would make the points more powerfully. So in the end, it became three substantial volumes. The first has come out. The second should come out beginning of next year. And the third, maybe in April next year. But they are not dissertations. They are, they are not memoirs. I, I did not access official records. They are just conversations, like the conversation we are having now. And I, I speculate, I recollect. I'm a little sentimental here and there. It's partly a travelogue. And it's like talking to a friend. It's like talking to many friends, because I don't think anyone will be interested in everything I talk about. But I think everyone will find something of interest in what I amuse about. Okay, I look forward to reading that book. George, I would love to spend a couple more hours talking to you because this is such an interesting chat, but we've run out of time. So I have to bring it to an end now and I have to thank you very much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. I look forward to talking to you again. Well, let's have another catch-up session. Thank you, Yonden. And we must meet up physically. Absolutely. We're in Hong Kong. Absolutely. Let's, let's meet up definitely when you're in town. Very good. Look forward to that. Thanks for listening to this edition of Behind the Story. Don't forget the Talking Post video version of this interview is available on our YouTube channel as well as SEMP.com. While there, you can also watch other episodes of Talking Post featuring personalities like former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, acclaimed journalist John Pilger, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and more. Take care and bye for now.